Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. On Reformation Sunday, I asked, would Martin Luther, were he writing today, have posted his 95 theses on Twitter instead of the Wittenberg door? I don't know about Luther, but Paul's text today is about as close to a Twitter feed as anything in the Bible. Uh, These statements are short, sharp, they're almost staccato in feel. Perfect thing for a series of tweets. In verses 9 through 13, there are only 59 words in the New International Version, which is far less than the 280-word limit that President Trump has to work with on Twitter. But in Greek, it's even shorter than that, 60 or 45 rapid-fire words. Now, we know Paul didn't think in terms of Twitter posts because some of his earlier sentences in Romans are paragraphs long. But what he's doing here is offering a list of virtues that characterize the people of Jesus in contrast to the list we've already seen in chapter 1 that characterizes the non-Christian world at large. Paul takes for granted that Christians will behave differently from non-Christians, that people in the family will bear a resemblance to each other and to Jesus that people outside the family don't have. Our Christian family is comprised of people from every race, language, and ethnicity. Some are black, some are lily-white, some are Asian, some Latino, some are rich, many are poor. With that kind of variety in the Jesus family, what possible trait could we all share? What marks us as part of his family? Paul would say, that's obvious. It's love. That's what this passage is about the way Christians love other people in the family and out. I've titled this message, Love Genuine, because those are the first words of verse 9, and Paul uses them as a kind of section title. What follows is a rapid-fire description of what genuine love looks like in the church, that's verses 9 through 13, in relationships generally, that's verses 14 through 16, and then even towards our enemies, that's verses 15 through 21. Today we'll only have time to go through verse 13. Uh, A couple months ago, Karen and I visited the Alamo, where for years there was a portrait on display representing James Butler Bonham, who was one of the heroes at the Alamo who died there, rode in after there was trouble, and stayed and died. Well, under the portrait was this caption, James Butler Bonham, and then the words, no picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major John Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It's placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Well, no picture of Jesus exists either, but God has placed us here at LCC, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, so that people may know the appearance of the one who died for salvation. He intends for us to greatly resemble our Savior. And that resemblance is principally seen in how we love. 
lest we get the idea that love is just mushy sentimental. How's that word go? Sentimentalism. Paul begins by describing love as hating. And that's not a strong enough word. In Greek, the word is more like loathing or abhorring evil. Love detests evil but clings to good. Now, I found some people are well-practiced at hating evil, but not so practiced at clinging to good. They can tell you what's wrong with other people and churches and political parties and Bible translations, and you know what? They're usually right. Other people cling to good. They practice positive thinking. They're easy to be around, but they tend to turn a blind eye to evil. You know, that happens in entire churches, too. Some preach against sin, but they don't preach people to Jesus. While others are careful to keep it positive, no matter what, keep it positive, but they avoid speaking the difficult truths. Real love does both. Now, verse 9 is the section title and and the subtitle. Genuine love, despising evil, clinging to good. Verses 10 through 13 then picture what genuine love looks like inside the church. Not the building, but in our relationships. Now, there's no governing verb in these verses. There's just a fast-moving list of nouns and participles that picture what love looks like among Christians. According to verse 10, love among Christians is filled with family affection. When non-Christians are around us, they can see that we act like brothers and sisters. Sometimes we really enjoy each other, and sometimes we really exasperate each other. But we're always ready to go to the mat for each other. Genuine love among Christians, it isn't stuffy. It has a family feel to it. Love is also honoring. Same verse. Now, honor is conspicuously absent in the broader culture. In politics, for sure. In business, in entertainment. But that makes it show up all the more clearly in the church. Paul writes that we should honor one another above yourselves, or more literally, as regards honor, leading the way for each other. The idea is that we won't wait for fellow Christians to show us honor or respect. We'll show them honor and respect first. We'll beat them to the punch. And we should note that honoring people like this, and all the other characteristics of love in this section, is evidence of the renewed mind of verse 2. Okay, Everything in chap- this chapter flows, in, in one sense you could say everything in the rest of the letter flows out of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The presentation to, of our bodies to God as living sacrifices and the renewal of our minds. Honoring people is evidence of a renewed mind. Honoring them, not flattering them for what we can get out of them, but honoring them for love's sake. It doesn't just happen. It comes from a mind that is in the process of being renewed. Society teaches us to withhold honor from those who won't give it to us and reserve it for people that are deemed important. But the renewed mind, and I think only the renewed mind, begins to see that everyone children, the elderly, the poor, the mentally challenged, everyone is important and therefore ought to be honored. Christians reject the world's social ladder. And they work 
at honoring one another. Now, verse 11. And that, this one is difficult to translate. Versions do it in a variety of ways, and that's because the noun in the first part of this verse has a range of meanings that people aren't quite sure what to do with. The NIV and ESV use the word zeal to translate it. The NASB uses diligence. The NLT avoids the word altogether and just says never be lazy. Greek is something like, as regards haste. It's the word for making haste, but here it has the idea of haste in doing the right thing. In, in regards to haste, not slothful. Now, remember the context. This is what genuine love looks like in the church. Genuine love doesn't say, yeah, maybe later. When it knows the right thing to say or to do, it doesn't hesitate. That's what the root of the word I've translated slothful means. It goes at it. Instead of hesitating, we're to keep our spiritual fervor, or better, as the NASB has it, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word translated fervor or fervent has the idea of a pot that is on the boil. You know, it used to be common to hear someone described as on fire for the Lord. I haven't heard that as much off lately. And I don't know if that means that phrase is sort of passed out of our usage or if people are less on fire for the Lord than they used to be. I'm not sure. But here the fire is not so much a matter of emotion as of love for the king, commitment to the kingdom, and a willingness to sacrifice for the family, for the men and women and children who've joined the cause. So let me ask you a question. Is your spirit as fervent now as it has been in the past? Is it simmering, or has the fire gone out? I can tell you from decades of pastoral experience that the people who are fervent in spirit are the people who are serving the Lord. The people who do nothing usually experience nothing and feel nothing. It's no wonder Paul puts these two ideas together. To remove a Christian from service is like removing a pot from the fire. It'll cool, and so will the Christian. We need to serve more than the church needs our service. So go ahead and retire from work, but don't retire from service to God and his people. Give up your hobbies, but don't give up your ministry. You can't afford to. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. This is a sermon in nine words. Don't count them. There are ten words in the NIV, but there are only nine words in what Paul wrote. Paul is telling us we have a great future ahead of us, difficulties all around us, and a God above us who hears our prayers. Good three-point sermon right there in those verses. I was having lunch with someone this week, and he, he lived in Alaska for 20 years. And he just told me, uh, he's telling me about these TV shows about Alaska, and he says he hates to watch them. He doesn't watch them because of the way they pick and choose what to show, and then they edit out all the stuff that doesn't amuse or entertain. You know what? No one can accuse the Apostle Paul of trying to amuse or entertain. He doesn't edit out the tough stuff. He admits that the people of Jesus have real hope, but they also have real affliction. But we have real hope. Our end is going to be better than our beginning. Is one of the people of Jesus old? He has reason to hope. Sick? She has reason to hope. Troubled? Life will be better. 
Our God is going to make all things new. He's going to restore the good that's been lost and banish forever the evil that now pervades our lives and our world. But that doesn't mean we don't have affliction. The Greek word translated that way has the idea of pressure, of being squeezed. Squeezed by money troubles, relationship troubles, health troubles, feeling like the walls are closing in. It can be scary. It hurts. We don't know what to do. But it's in those moments when we're squeezed and hurting and we don't know what to do that we must rejoice in our hope. We must take hold of our hope, as the author of Hebrews puts it, and do it with both hands. And it's in those moments that Jesus tells us, and we know it in our hearts, we know it as well as we know anything, It's in those moments that he tells us, I've got you. In the terrible shootings in San Bernardino a couple years ago, you remember there was a couple couple who were radicalized terrorists. They shot up a Christmas party just this time of the year in a rented banquet room. They tried to set off a bomb. Well, 14 people were killed. One of the survivors, though, was a 27-year-old girl named Denise Parraza. She survived because a 45-year-old fellow employee, Shannon Johnson, shielded her. They were sitting at a table. In fact, they were joking at how long, how slow the clock was moving at this party. They were just ready for it to be over. When, when the shooters came in and everything was chaos, they got under the table and they used a fallen chair as a shield. Denise says she can't remember everything that happened <clears throat> over the next few minutes, but she will never forget this. Shannon, and I don't know if she even knew him beforehand, Shannon, who was killed, put his left arm around her, held her as close as possible, and shielded her behind the chair with chaos and terror all around them. He said three words, which she said she'll never forget. I've got you. We have a living, vibrant hope. And we have pressure, chaos, fear. But we also have a Savior who stretched out his arms and said, I've got you. He is saying it still. What do we do with this hope and affliction? We pray. We talk to God. The word translated faithful in in the NIV means something like always on call for prayer. The idea is that you are ready to pray at the drop of a pin. Everything going on around you becomes a cue for you to pray. I have often wondered why some people make it in the kingdom. While others, others who used to be on fire for the Lord, wash out. And I think the answer might be, or at least part of the answer might be, the ones who make it pray. If we could see the hidden life of those who persevere in affliction and those who don't, the difference might be just that. Those who pray persevere. Those who don't pray don't. I've noticed that in Paul's letters, hope and endurance are frequently linked. It's not like we have hope 
because we don't have problems. He links these two things because he knew that people who rejoice in hope are the people who persevere in affliction. And the people who persevere in affliction are the people who pray. Verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, the first part of this verse, translated literally, would be, as to the needs of the saints, sharing. Paul doesn't so much tell people who have resources to share with brothers and sisters in need as he tells them to share the needs of the brothers and sisters they have. Now, the action might be the same. Maybe... it ends up opening your wallet. But the attitude makes a huge difference. It's not just giving money to someone. It's sharing their concern, their hurt, their fear. It's sympathizing, empathizing, caring. See, even if you don't have money, Jesus expects you to share your brother's and sister's needs. It's what Paul meant when he said, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the hospitality mentioned in this verse is a little different than what we usually mean by the word. When we use the word, it's usually about opening our homes to friends and coworkers, especially for a dinner, which we're going to serve on our best china and make sure that everything's just right. In other words, we think of hospitality as entertainment. The biblical writers did not. That never even entered their mind. The Greek word translated hospitality is made up of two roots, stranger and love. The idea is love of strangers. The idea is to open your home to a fellow Christian, not for a meal, but for a night, and perhaps longer. Not to entertain, but to intervene between the stranger and hunger or homelessness. When Paul was writing, there were many traveling teachers and evangelists, missionaries like Paul himself, and non-Christian and sometimes hostile countries to whom Christians gave lodging and meals And then after a couple days, sent on their way. It's actually instructions, two or three days at most, in the Didache, about right around 100 AD, teaching about how to live out the life. Instead of practice hospitality, the original language is a little different. It's pursue hospitality. Paul wants us to raise our game in this matter, to go after it, to keep it in our sights, He knows how easy it is for us to get comfortable, to turn inward and forget our mission and the people who share it. All right, let's make this practical. Or let's make it practicable. There's a better way of putting it. Let's figure out how we're going to apply something from this text to our lives when we leave here this morning. Let's not take all 10 things that are mentioned. Let's just take one. From verses 10 through 13, there are 10 application possibilities. I want you to choose one, formulate a plan, and then act on it. So first, there is the family love of verse 10. Is there something you can do to make someone at LCC feel wanted and part of the family? Have them over to your home or go out for a meal or hang out together. Who is it? And what can you do? What idea comes to mind? Maybe that's your application point. If something did come to mind, that probably is. Number two, lead the way in showing honor to the members of our Christian family. So here are a couple suggestions. Speak highly of people to others in their absence. When they're not there, speak highly of them. Never allow gossip to go on about someone. 
Mention what you admire about others to them. Defer to others' desires and opinions. Listen closely to what they're saying. That's a powerful way to honor others. Acknowledge their efforts. Congratulate them on their successes. If this is the one you'll apply, choose someone to honor and get started. Start thinking of ways to do it and then do it. Number three, hurry to do the right thing. If there's something you know God wants you to do for someone else, don't hesitate. Do it. One of the biggest problems in the Christian life is saying later. Numbers four and five, I'll put these together because they're related. Keeping your spirit warm and serving the Lord. Have you left your first love? Has your spirit flagged? Then get close to other people who are on fire for God and his kingdom. You know, it is hard, as Charles Spurgeon put it, to build a fire with just one log. Don't isolate yourself. You need to be next to people who have some spiritual fervor. So get involved in ministry. I've often seen people catch fire as they've begun serving and they found their place. It's not always easy to find your place, but once they found their place, they get hot. Find a place to serve that matches your interests, your gifts, and your life story. Talk to me or to an elder or a deacon and get ideas. Number six, here's the next possibility, rejoice in hope. How do you do that? Let me give you some suggestions. Write out a celebration of your hope. Write it out and refer to it at the beginning of each month in 2018. Read about your Christian hope. C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, always stirs me. Or read Andy, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. Or get a concordance and look up every reference to the word hope and write down what you learn. Right? Rejoice in hope. Number seven, be patient. Better persevere in affliction. So share your troubles with another Christian and with God. Grit your teeth if you have to. Better sing a song. Put one foot in front of the other. Ask people for help. Make a little sign for your desk or put on your bathroom mirror a little picture of Jesus on the cross and under it write, I've got you and don't give up. We need you not to give up. Number eight, pray. Here's one to raise your game on. Set aside a specific time or times for prayer. Try morning, noon, and evening. That's what King David did. Keep and constantly update a prayer list of needs. Keep it with you somewhere. Put it on your phone or in a little notebook. Learn to say breath prayers. You know what breath prayers are? They're short, short pointed requests or prayers that you can say with a breath. Lord, have mercy on me. I love you, Lord, or something like that. Join a prayer group or start one to pray for our church family. Maybe our needs this morning are going to stimulate someone to get a couple people together and start praying. That would be fantastic. Number nine, share the needs of the saints. Ask people at church about their situation. Take the bulletin prayer requests and look them over and ask God how he wants you to share someone's need. Maybe send a note to that person, give them a call, drop off a meal, ask how you can help. Maybe that application point is for you. Number 10, 
pursue hospitality. Pursue it. Hound it. As we're going to see when we get back to this passage after Christmas, almost one of the very next words is this word again. Only it's used of people who hound Christians to do them harm. It's translated persecute there. The idea is pursue it. Pursue hospitality. At church, you can be hospitable here. Uh, Welcoming people. And family promise, what a need we have there. You can do it in your home, using what you have to bless others. Pursue hospitality. Now choose one of those ten ways. Don't try to choose all ten. Choose one. And then tell someone. Spouse, friend, Facebook group maybe, pastor. Tell someone which one you've chosen. That's going to make you take that step. And then ask God how to start. When you have an idea how to go about it, don't put it off, don't hesitate, not slothful. Get started. It's not enough to think about it. Do it. It's not enough to talk about love. It's those who live a life of love who are blessed. As James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Let's do what it says here. And then let's watch God do what he says. All right, let's pray. Lord, would you bring home something out of this to us? And then don't let us get away from it. By the Spirit who brings all truth, would you remind us of this truth and tell us that it's ours and help us to see what to do with it. Lord, grant us to be those people who hear and put into practice what you've said. For Jesus' sake, amen.